When mixing a recording, you can do something called riding the faders, which means moving the faders up and down manually to create a sense of motion in the mix. You can actually have the mixing desk record your motions so that the next time you play it back, it moves the mix the same way, and that's called automation. The faders will move on their own, and it's pretty cool looking. It looks like the whole board is haunted by a very musical ghost. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and as always, I'm so glad that you've joined me to talk about recordings that used automation, recordings where they manually rode the faders, and sometimes recordings where they just left everything as it was. We've got a very special episode today, a time to look back at the year that was, and I'm excited to do that. So find a comfortable place to sit, turn up the volume, and enjoy the show. It has now been two years since I started making Strong Songs, which is super wild to think about, but I have been making this show for two years, and if you've been listening to this show for two years, thanks, and thanks to everybody who's joined me along the way. At the end of the first year, I took the opportunity to look back at all of the episodes I'd made that year, and I'm going to be doing the same thing on this episode. This is the year two capper episode in which we look back on the 18 songs that I dissected in year two of Strong Songs. First, a slight programming note, I am going to be taking the month of December off, just like I did last year, so there will be no new episodes of the show in December, and I will be starting at the beginning of January 2021 with new episodes. That means that if you are a patron of the show, and thank you so much if you're a patron of the show over on Patreon, you will not be charged for the month of December, it's just totally an off month, I'm suspending the Patreon for that month, but people can still go sign up, so by all means, go sign up to be a patron of the show if you want to support me making this show in year three, head over to patreon.com slash strong songs, and you won't even have to pay for the month of December, you can just hang out, watch old videos and stuff, read old posts, and I will be back with new episodes at the beginning of January 2021. Thanks so much to everybody who has ordered merch from the new Strong Songs store. That's been really cool. I've never had an online store before. I've never had merch for one of my projects before. I guess I had t-shirts for a band I was in back in the day, but that sort of felt different. But this has been really cool. It's neat to see people ordering stuff from all over the world and then to see your pictures on social media as you get your thumb pop sizzle t-shirts or coffee mugs or cool headphone shirts, um, all kinds of things like that. So by all means, go to store.strongsongspodcast.com and check out what we've got. It's a great way to support the show. And you can also get some fun gifts for anyone in your family who maybe listens to the show or likes music. So again, that's store.strongsongspodcast.com. Go check it out. It has been a year. 2020 has been quite a year, a year full of challenge and heartbreak in a lot of ways, but also a year where I had a lot of fun making a music podcast. I don't really know how to reconcile those two things, though they'll forever coexist in my mind, and making this show was a great joy for me. It was a source of joy for me in a year that was full of challenges and anxiety, a year where I, and I know a lot of other people, really felt isolated. Making Strong Songs actually helped me feel connected to a lot of people and connected to the musical part of myself, the music of the past, and the music of the present. 
I talked about a lot of cool music on the show this year. I had a great time making the show. I think I've gotten better at making the show over the course of the year, which only makes sense. This is something I've been doing two years now, and I still feel like I'm learning new things uh, with every episode that I do. So I've just been having a great time. It's been a really fun process. I still love doing this show more than almost anything else, and I love that you've all come along for the journey. So come along for another little journey with me as we go back to the beginning of year two and go song by song through all the songs that I talked about. And I'm going to just highlight one thing from each song. And either it'll be like something that I thought was interesting in the episode that I just want to kind of highlight or something that I learned since I made the episode. It could be anything. Just one thing for each song in order over the course of the year. Without further ado, one year, 18 songs, a look back at Strong Songs Year 2. Song 1, Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven was the song that I kicked off year two with. It seemed like an appropriately epic song to talk about, and it was actually an interesting challenge. I thought that I knew this song. I thought it was a little bit simpler than it really was, and I wound up having to go back midway through the episode and rework it a little bit because it has more distinct sections than I realized that it does. It was a fun song to talk about for a number of reasons. Good to kind of clear out the cobwebs after taking a month off from making the show. I like talking about John Paul Jones's bass recorder playing on this, which you can hear right now, mostly because it gave me an in to talk a little bit about Ludwig Göransson's soundtrack to The Mandalorian, which also uses bass recorder. There's a lady who's sure All that glitters is gold And she's there was plenty in this analysis that I had a good time with. Like I said, it was cool kind of teasing out the different sections of this song, which is a little bit more complex than it sounds. And anytime you hear me say that on that episode, know that I'm saying it because I had to go back and rework things because the song was more complex than I even realized at first. It was also fun to kind of plant the seeds for the later Jeff Buckley episode in talking about Robert Plant's vocals. But the thing that I want to highlight on this retrospective is actually something that I didn't mention. It's an overdubbed guitar part that plays during Jimmy Page's guitar solo. And it plays four notes that may sound familiar to you if you have listened to this show or other podcasts that I have appeared on. Check it out. You hear those four notes? Do they sound familiar to you at all? <laughs> So yeah, if you have listened to my episode on Making Christmas from the Nightmare Before Christmas, or if you listened to the episode of 20,000 Hertz, a different podcast that I guested on talking about this, you might recognize those four notes as the main four notes from the Dies Irae. That's a Latin death hymn that is used all over the place, is very popular, and I've talked about quite a bit on this show. And I don't know whether Paige was specifically going for it, but it is those same four notes. So another cool example of the DSE Ray turning up in a very famous recording. This one's not a movie, it's a rock recording, but hey, it's those same four notes. It's the DSE Ray, and whether it was on purpose or not, it's just an example of the way that that little musical meme has worked its way into a lot of unexpected places.
Song two, Love Fooled by the Cardigans. This song is just a lot of fun. This is one of those underappreciated gems that I think I helped some more people appreciate, which is nice to know. It's a straightforward song. It was a pretty straightforward process taking it apart, but it was a very fun and rewarding one to analyze. So the thing that I want to highlight that brings this song's brilliance into focus is the pre-chorus. I think the pre-chorus on this song is really amazing, and it was fun to take it apart. It gave me a better appreciation for how well-assembled it is. It's three bars long, but they fit a lot into those three bars. So there's those cool little kind of oppositionally moving guitar parts that are moving and building the harmony uh, between the two of them. There's that nice little theremin sound that plays in the background. And then there's Nina Peshin's voice, and I really like the way that they've produced her. So she starts kind of down in her register with that radio sound on her voice. And then, when the chorus comes in, you hear her stereo. She's sort of mixed left and right in harmony, this big lush sound. And then she comes out solo singing Say That You Love Me just in her own voice, panned right in the center with no weird EQ tricks or anything. Say that you love me. It's a lot of densely packed little production tricks all at once, giving a sense of motion and making the whole thing feel like a little journey. It's just a really cool song from an album that I love from a band that I think doesn't get enough love, so I hope you find the time to go back and listen to this and listen to the Cardigans. Song 3, Rush's Tom Sawyer! (laughs) Well, this one was fun. Tom Sawyer, a great song to talk about, gave me a newfound appreciation for Rush and in particular for their late great drummer, Neil Peart, whose name I learned to pronounce to make this episode, but also who I learned was just a really great guy. While I was making this episode, I watched a documentary called A Work in Progress, which is uh, about Neil Peart and features him, and he talks all about drumming and his process, and in particular, his sort of process of relearning how to play the drums, and it was super fun to tie that in with, um, actually, the TV show Freaks and Geeks, the great canceled one-season show Freaks and Geeks, which had a whole little sort of mini side plot about Neil Peart and a drummer who loved Neil Peart and talking about jazz drumming and Buddy Rich and traditional grip versus matched grip, and that was really fun to get into on the episode. The thing that I want to highlight is actually a concept that I identified on this episode that I think was kind of useful, and that is the kite and anchor solo. So when Alex Lifeson plays a solo on this song, he really flies free. And I knew of this kind of solo, but had never really thought of a way to describe it before, where the soloist flies loose from the rhythm section, and because the rhythm section provides an anchor, they can be a kite kind of flying free on the wind.
So I wound up settling on the image of the kite and the anchor for that kind of a solo, which I think is kind of a useful framework. I certainly think of it a lot. There are a whole bunch of soloists that I really like that play in this way. I like to play in this way sometimes too, to be the kite. And sometimes I like to be the anchor too. Um, so I liked that concept. I thought that was kind of a cool way of thinking of that solo. And man, just what a good song. What a cool synthesizer. Learned all about the Oberheim OBX when I was making this episode. Now I really want one. One of the downsides of making this show is that I wind up wanting a lot of different instruments that I learn about. Uh, I'm making it. But man, Tom Sawyer, Rush, great band, great song. And I also got to play a saxophone solo along with Rush, which is probably the closest I'll ever come to getting to do that. So I will regale you with that saxophone solo one last time here at the end of the year. Song four, toss a coin to your witcher. Toss a coin to your witcher, oh valley of plenty, oh valley of plenty, oh. Toss a coin to your witcher, oh valley of plenty. What started as an answer to a Q&A question kind of spiraled out into a bonus episode of Strong Songs, which I think has now kind of developed into a strategy that some people use when they write in asking questions about songs for Q&A episodes, thinking, you know, I want to hear a song on Strong Songs, and uh, it's probably a likely way to get my song featured is to ask about it, and hey, maybe it'll even get its own bonus episode. That definitely happened with Toss a Coin to Your Witcher from the Netflix TV show The Witcher, which I really liked, and man, even thinking back to when The Witcher had first aired. That was, uh, that was a lot of fun. That feels like a hundred years ago. So this song by Sonia Belisova and Giona Ostinelli, featuring Joey Beatty singing the lead part, singing very well. Uh, this was a lot of fun to talk about. I think the thing that I really enjoyed uh, getting into is the way that the chord progression is actually kind of the same chord progression as Stairway to Heaven. Toss a coin to your witcher, oh valley of plenty, oh valley of plenty. It's in a different key, but it's got a kind of a similar vibe, and it goes from that sort of one minor to five to flat three major to four. It's got that same epic Ren Faire sound that Stairway to Heaven has. Um, I don't know if that's a coincidence. It could be. It's kind of a common chord progression. Um, but even if they were kind of going for that sound, it makes sense that it's a sound you would go for with a song like this. And I just really love this song. I think it's remarkable that such a perfectly cheesy, earwormy anthem elevated a show that was already good, but I really think that this song kind of was The Witcher's secret sauce. It was the the song that let everybody in and let everyone in on the joke and sort of what makes that show so fun and this really fun mix of seriousness and ridiculousness. It's a great song even if the mix does get kind of weird once the whole ensemble is in. Song 5, Nina Simone's Sinnerman. Man. 
This one was a lot to tackle for a number of different reasons. It's one of the only live recordings that I've talked about on the show. That was an enjoyable challenge and led me to get to talk about some things like microphone bleed and just the sound of actual human beings on a stage making music together. It was, of course, also an opportunity to get to tell more people about Nina Simone, the great Nina Simone, whose greatness I think is actually underappreciated by people who think of her as a singer, but don't necessarily think of her as a master pianist, a ranger, an important cultural force, an activist, and uh, just all of these other things that she also very much was. I do think that it's that liveness that's the thing that I want to focus on now. The way that this was recorded, and in particular the way that you can hear all of these different ways that Nina Simone is making music, particularly on that bridge, that sort of interlude uh, middle section where she starts clapping, you can just hear her, you can hear her physicality in so many different ways, her voice, these sort of utterances she's making rhythmically as she starts singing, of course the clapping, the whole thing, it really uh, conveys that energy, that power that she had, and I watched a lot of videos of Nina Simone performing. Uh, while I was working on this episode, I watched that documentary, What Happened Miss Simone, and also just watched a lot of uh, live footage of her performing, and man, if any of you haven't done that, and you listened to that episode, you gotta go do it. You have to see her perform, because it's such a crucial part of understanding her genius. It was also fun to learn her piano parts and then to come back to that a little bit later. I always come back to that intro piano part, which is so cool because if you play it with proper piano technique, you can do the whole thing with one hand. And it took me a little while to get my fingers able to do that. It's much easier for me to do it using two hands, like I talked about on the episode. I, I did it with two hands when I was recreating it on the episode. But of course, she does it with one hand because she's a very good piano player. So it's been fun to return to her piano parts a bit throughout the year. Last thing I want to mention is, I talked some about Bill Conti's tremendous score for the 1999 remake of The Thomas Crown Affair. I love that movie and was recently just re-watching it, because I just rewatch it. Sometimes it'll be on a streaming service that I have and I'll just decide to watch it, since it's such a fun movie to watch. And I hadn't watched the movie since I made the episode and became intimately familiar with the entirety of that famous Sinnerman recording from Pastel Blues. And man, that whole soundtrack owes a lot to Nina Simone and to Sinnerman. It's a great soundtrack on its own. It's honestly, it's one of my favorite movie soundtracks. I love it. I think Bill Conti did an incredible job working his own original music in with Sinnerman. And in particular, with that clapping breakdown, he uses those claps, he samples them or recreates them, and they weave in and out of his original score, and then sometimes Nina Simone's recording will take over, and it's such an integral part of the score that the one thing I will say is, I wish that the movie gave her top-line credit at the beginning. 
you know, music by Bill Conti featuring Sinner Man as performed by Nina Simone. I would have loved to see her name because it was actually a lot of years after seeing that movie that I learned that that was her recording and went and listened to it. And I knew the music really well because I had loved the movie, you know, back when it first came out and I saw it. But I think that the movie kind of owes that to her. She's such a big part of the energy of the movie. And I do really wish that more people who saw it were kind of really shown her name and, and made aware of the fact that this one artist is really responsible for the movie's sound. In addition to Conti, who I really want to stress did an amazing job and his soundtrack is incredible. I'm sure that that's all tied up with like complicated crediting stuff and unions and rules and guilds and whatever. I just sort of think it would have been a nice thing to see and I want to really shout that out if you watch that movie. It's a fun one to watch and after you've listened to the Cinderman episode, it's even more fun because you'll hear all of these clever ways that Conti weaves her music into his own. Oh, I run to the river it was boiling around the sea. It was boiling around the sea. It was boiling all on the day. So I ran to the Lord. I said, Lord, hide me. Please hide me. Please help me all on that day. He said, Song six. God Only Knows by the Beach Boys. I may not always love you, but long as there are stars above you, you never need to doubt it. I'll make you so sure about it. God Only where do I cut in to start talking? It's hard to say because this song basically begins and never ends until it ends. It's just nothing but a new idea on top of a new idea on top of a new idea. It almost never plateaus, and that is one of the many, many incredible things about it. This song, this episode, this was a fun one to make because this song is kind of a compositional freak show. Brian Wilson just kind of scares me. Um, there aren't a lot of songwriters where I'll sit down and begin to work out the chord progression of what they've done and just start laughing. And by the time I'm done charting the whole thing out, just be sitting there kind of agog. And I did find myself uh, feeling that way when I had fully transcribed this song. I'd heard it a ton of times, but I'd never really sat down at the piano and looked at the way that the chords all tie into one another, these concentric circles that he's drawing, the way that he keeps looping back but going into new places. It is bananas, and I hope that I captured at least some of that on this episode. So what good would living do me? God only knows what I'd be The thing that I want to highlight is that instrumental section in the bridge where the vocalists do sing, but they're not singing words. They're kind of just doing vocalese. And the chord progression there is the thing that really, really freaked me out because it moves through this constant kind of counterpoint with these three different voices that then resolves back to singing God Only Knows What I'd Be Without You in a way that's just so tidy. I mean, it is the epitome of this kind of songwriting, and it's wonderfully executed. I recreated that vocal counterpoint using flute, clarinet, and alto saxophone. That was also really fun, and uh, gave me a way, at least, of hearing those three parts a little bit differently. Hopefully it did for some of you, too. And at the very least, I had a good time recording it. 
actually just got my clarinet totally overhauled and tuned up, which is exciting because it had been leaking quite a bit. It had been a long time since I'd taken it into the shop, so you can expect some more clarinet playing in year three. Song 7, So What by Miles Davis. Nope, nope, you know what? We already did that joke. Let's try that again. Song 7, So What by Miles Davis. I love a good jazz episode of Strong Songs, and this was the instrumental jazz episode of Year Two, though of course you could argue that there are jazz influences and jazz elements in a lot of the songs that I talked about. This was the most straight-ahead instrumental jazz, and uh, gave me a nice opportunity to talk about each of the six musicians who played on this track, and to sort of chart the course of their musical careers after this culminating work. Making this episode also gave me a chance to work on my pronunciation of the word suibakuga, which was a fun thing to do and a fun concept to talk about. When I first set out to make this episode, I kind of had a choice to make. I could either spend the entire episode just on the nuts and bolts of what was going on, or I could dedicate a kind of significant chunk of it to explaining each individual musician and the trajectories of their careers. I chose that second option. I made a playlist of all of the artists, and that was fun, and I hope that I introduced some of you to those musicians and helped you get a sense of that kind of broader timeline and that broader context that makes listening to jazz so much fun, since so many of these musicians moved in one another's orbits and collaborated on various albums over the years. They weren't just like a band that played together for a set period of time, though of course some of them did that as well. The upshot of this episode was to focus on an explanation of modal jazz and what modal jazz really is, uh, what relying on modes of scales instead of dense chord progressions like in bebop or hardbop, and sort of what makes modal jazz different from those styles. I also liked talking about phrasing and Miles Davis's solo, the first chorus of his solo, which is such a famous solo. It's the solo that so many jazz musicians learn as their first solo, and it's really nice because it kind of isolates that interplay between him and Bill Evans on the piano. I hope that this episode gave some of you a new appreciation for this album, because while it's held up as one of the greatest jazz albums ever made, I think it's kind of lost on a lot of people why that is, the specific reason, the sort of group improvisation and composition, the way that these songs were just sketched out and filled in by the musicians in the spirit of the moment, that's what makes this album special, and that's what made it cool to talk about on this show. Song 8, Last Goodbye by Jeff Buckley. Well, this is our last 
man, this one was a challenge. This song is really complicated in a way that uh, is just a little bit different than most of the songs that I've talked about on Strong Songs. A lot of that comes down to the guitar tuning, which rendered the entire song into a kind of an abstract space for me, because I knew how to play it on guitar, and I learned all the shapes and fingerings with this song's unusual uh, guitar tuning, but I hadn't really learned it on piano, so I couldn't translate that to the more universal, you know, harmony knowledge that I have when I generally learn something on guitar with standard tuning. So it took me a while to kind of reverse engineer the guitar parts that I had learned in order to figure out what was actually going on so that I could recreate it on other instruments, on piano, on sampled instruments, and just explain on the show what's going on harmonically in this song. In some ways, it's not actually that harmonically complicated of a song, but it's totally distinct sounding, and that all comes down to that guitar playing. I think that guitar playing more than anything else is what I really wanted to focus on because a lot of people think of Jeff Buckley as a vocalist, which he was a fantastic vocalist and he had an incredible voice, a voice unlike almost anybody else, so it's understandable that people would first think of his voice. But he was an amazing guitar player and I think that, you know, his singing was an essential part of his music, but his guitar playing was too. And it was cool to pick apart his guitar parts on this song and really get into that. This was almost an episode about Grace. I feel like Grace is a little bit more of a vocal showcase, though both songs have pretty cool guitar parts and pretty cool vocal parts. But um, the Grace episode didn't happen. Maybe if I return to Jeff Buckley at some point down the road, we'll talk about Grace. But in the meantime, I was very happy to talk about Last Goodbye and to give a tribute to the late, great Jeff Buckley. Song 9, Walking on Broken Glass by Annie Lennox. This song, man. was so much fun to do talking about Annie Lennox's Walking on Broken Glass. I want to do more songs like this in the future where it isn't some enshrined classic the way that some of the songs that I talk about are, but it's a classic and it's a great song and it's a song that a lot of people knew or had stuck in their head at some point in their lives and it's certainly been a song that has been stuck in my head basically my entire life. I was obsessed with it as a kid without even really fully knowing why and then when I went and sat down and learned it of course it was clear why. It's a fascinating beautiful song with all this fun stuff going on. It has such a good groove and it has such a good hook. It just gets off to such a good start and it just builds from there. I think my favorite thing about this song that I unearthed as I was learning it and then got to surface for all of you were some of what Lennox does with the backup vocals. There are just so many cool backup vocals. The way she sets up that chorus with the walk down feels just like I'm walking on. And then the strings pick it up with that fast run upward and the whole thing just transitions beautifully into the chorus. I love it.
the backup vocals on the bridge when they sing these doits at the very end of the phrase. She adds so much life to her backup vocals that she overdubs and it adds so much life to the recording. The sun's still shining in the big blue sky, but it don't mean nothing to me. And then on the next phrase, like when they walk down and everything moves down as she sings, let the rain fall down and it matches up with what she's singing. It's so good. Okay, okay, I'm not going to remake the entire episode here. You should just go listen to it again. Um, I kind of want to go listen to it again. The song was so much fun. And yeah, I want to find more songs like this. It has a certain quality that's a little bit different than a lot of the songs that I talk about on this show. It's hard to put my finger on it, but I just really, really like this song a lot. And I really have come to just love Annie Lennox's music uh, full stop. She's just so great. And it was cool to rediscover that while making this episode. Song 10, Chicago, by Sufjan Stevens. Ah, this song. Four chords and a beautiful road trip that let me get a little bit more dramatic than usual. I fell in love again. All things go. All things go. Drove to Chicago. All things know. All things know. Those four chords were at the heart of my entire analysis of this song D major, A minor, C major, and G major. And I really do think that's what makes this song special, or at least it's what makes it special to me. They're not super remarkable chords on their own. That chord progression has turned up in other songs, but there's something about the way that Sufyan uses it, the way that he embraces that minimalist compositional style. He creates something that just feels numinous, that feels so spiritual. And a bunch of people wrote in after listening to this episode, and you know, they kind of connected with them in that sort of a way too. And they mentioned the fact that Sufjan Stevens actually has written a lot of spiritual music and is a very spiritual person, and that it makes sense that that kind of energy would infuse his music, even when it's not, you know, explicitly spiritual music. And I think that that's true. There's just something spiritual about this song, even though it's not about any one religion or anything. You came to take us. All things go. All things go. I do a lot of little recreations of songs when I'm making this show, and I always have a lot of fun with those, but this one was special. There was just something about the process of taking those four chords and layering them the way that he does, and just seeing the song kind of bloom out of those individual parts as I built it myself that was really undeniably special. I said there's magic in this song, I still think there's magic in this song, I don't know how to describe it other than that, and I made an entire episode of my podcast about this song, there's just something about it. So one more time, for posterity, D, A, C, 
G. Sufjan Stevens's Chicago. Song 11. Kiss by Prince. I know for a fact that I wasn't sure which Prince song to do on this show, but listening back to this song now, was there ever really a choice? I learned a lot while making this episode. This song has quite a story behind it. It's one of the best documented songs um, I've covered on this show, probably second to A Day in the Life, which is the most well-documented recording ever. But uh, uh, Kiss was pretty well-documented, and it's such an interesting story how Prince had written the song and given it to this band Maserati, and then he kind of popped into the studio and reworked it after they had recorded a demo version. And his version was that stripped-down, very odd, very Prince version that nobody thought would work and that the A&R guy guys were apparently freaked out about at the record label, and he just stuck to his guns and said, no, release it, and then of course the rest is history. The thing that I really liked doing with this song was connecting a whole bunch of different threads of black American music over the decades, and all of the different influences that led up to this song, which then of course wound up being an influence on a whole new generation of artists after it came out. That started, of course, with the song form Kiss is a Blues, and I think that's actually a really cool fact about it. There are a lot of blueses in more old-fashioned music, but there aren't that many modern blueses, or at least you wouldn't think there are, but then again, you start listening to songs and you realize that the blues is still with us in a lot of ways, and Kiss is as straightforward a blues as there is. It's a song that I knew super well because everyone who grew up around when I grew up knew it super well. It was on the radio all the time. But sitting down and listening to it really just sort of marinating in the strangeness of this recording, the fact that there's no bass, the fact that it does sound like a stripped-down demo, you can kind of understand why a conservative A&R person might be nervous about it. And then again, when you listen to the groove and you listen to those vocals, that guitar part that comes in the bridge, there's just no denying that it totally rules so you can understand why Prince was so confident in it. Song 12, World 1-1 from Super Mario Brothers. What a pleasure to talk about Koji Kondo's incredible video game music, the man who wrote some of the most iconic video game themes of all time, and I'd say that his most famous one, of course, is this one, the World 1-1 music from Super Mario Brothers. This was a fun episode for a lot of reasons. Of course, I love talking about video games, and I like talking about video game music. I also co-host a video game podcast called Triple Click, and we had launched a little bit before this episode came out, but I uh, released an episode of Triple Click talking about video game music around the same time as this one, talking about the music from Final Fantasy VII, so it was kind of a very video game music-heavy month or so for me. So the fun thing was understanding this music in terms of the Nintendo Entertainment System sound generation module, and those three synths that they were working with, along with the noise channel, and the way that Kondo used those restrictions to create such cool parts. I think the most fun thing when I was making this episode was just isolating each part and then playing them back on a different sounding instrument. Because of the nature of the synths and the different sounds that Kondo use, it's actually pretty easy to pick out those individual parts and tell them apart from one another. You start to hear how they're going to sound stacked together even when you're hearing them in isolation. 
and then you finally put the three together and they fit together so neatly like three little puzzle pieces. I also liked recreating that noise channel groove just by beatboxing with a uh, with an EQ filter on it. And then my favorite thing was probably um, imposing a timbao over this, a type of bass line from Afro-Cuban music, which I think really makes the World 1-1 music pop. listener also wrote in to point out that while I talked about the stylistic influences on the song, I did not mention Calypso, which is a very clear stylistic influence uh, that Kondo was probably going for. Calypso music, a really cool folk music from Trinidad and Tobago that then spread around the Caribbean. Awesome music, so many great Calypso artists out there, something I'll probably talk about in the future. Song 13, No One Knows by Queens of the Stone Age. Oh yeah, I don't really know what else to say other than this song ruled and I really liked making an episode about it. No, 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 I, I do know what I want to say about it. This song, like this album, is really all about Dave Grohl, the Foo Fighters frontman who also played drums on this album, just like he played drums in Nirvana. And man, what a musical drummer, what a great drummer, what a creative and melodic drummer. I loved making this episode because I loved being able to focus on Grohl's drumming and really talk about how he does what he does. The highlight of the episode for me was getting to finally truly break down his drum fills that he plays over what I guess you could call the chorus of the song and uh, and show how he develops these melodic ideas over the course of that section of the song. love the drumming on this track so much. I love the drumming on this album so much. I hope that this uh, hipped some people to just how good Dave Grohl is and how great this record is. And also just that concept of being a melodic drummer and a very musical drummer and what that means. You know, what it means to take a drum set and treat it like a melodic instrument where you're building phrases and rhymes and, you know, the way I used a limerick to kind of illustrate the way that Grohl phrases one of his drum fills. I think that's really fun to talk about and Grohl is such a great example of that. And this tune is just it's just killer on every level song 14 wedding song from Hades town
Oh, Hades Town, the show I wish I could have gone and seen, and maybe in a parallel timeline where COVID didn't happen, I would have been able to see it before I made this episode, but I still was happy to make this one to talk about Anais Mitchell's wonderful show and to highlight just how much music there is in uh, this one song, in Wedding Song, which happens at the very beginning of the musical but sets the stage for so much that comes after. I always like to do these little recreations of the grooves on various songs, but this one was fun just because I think I could get pretty close to approximating what the band, the uh, Hades Town stage band, is playing during the beginning of Wedding Song, and I really like that groove. I just think it has a nice pocket to it. Of course, the other highlight of this episode was bringing in the wonderful Lindsay Ellis to relay what happens on stage when Orpheus sings his big song epic, The Song, uh, when he does his trust fall, which is something that I had not seen, though I know that the direction and blocking of this show is really incredible, but because I hadn't gotten to see it on stage, I couldn't talk about it, so it was very cool that she came on the show to explain that. A wonderful musical, even if you're only just listening to it. And, you know, who knows? Maybe in 2021 or 2022, I'll actually get to go see it. Song 15, The Chain by Fleetwood Mac. I did not go into the Fleetwood Mac episode expecting to do two songs. I, uh, I thought I was only going to do one, but uh, I wound up doing two and I'm giving them separate entries in this year in review because they're very different songs despite forming two halves of the episode's whole. had a good time learning the guitar parts on this one. This is another tune with a really classic sounding guitar part and it's really classic to play as well. Put the capo in the right place and you can just really slide around on that E blues and it's, uh, it's just very fun to kind of mess around on the guitar in this song's harmonic sort of blues neighborhood. But actually, my favorite thing in talking about The Chain was actually sort of similar to Love Fool, where it's all in that vocal arrangement on the chorus. I think that vocal arrangement is more creative and dense than people might realize, certainly than I realized before I made the episode. And it was cool to figure out that little narrative that plays out where it starts in unison and then it goes into this staggered vocals where the two vocal parts are kind of echoing one another, then they sing in harmony, then they repeat the phrase, and then the second time they sing in harmony and that overdubbed backup vocal comes in with that beautiful ethereal descending line. It's such a great narrative that really does just build and build and build throughout both statements of the chorus, and it rules. Here, listen back to the chorus, and if you listen to that episode, just see if you can remember all the things we talked about, and uh, keep your ears open for all of that. All right, here we go. Song 16, Dreams, also by Fleetwood Mac. Oh, 
Oh my god, what can I even say about this song? This song that became an international phenomenon right after I rediscovered it and fell back in love with it. This song is magic. In 2020, the world rediscovered and re-fell in love with Stevie Nicks' dreams, not thanks to me or my analysis, but thanks to a cool dude on a skateboard with some ocean spray lip-syncing along with the song, and it was so fun to watch so many people make the same discovery that I had made literally just like a couple of weeks earlier about this song, just listening to it and being like, this is just a timeless, incredible song. There are so many little things that make this song great that elevate it, and I know that's true of a lot of songs that I talk about on this show, but it's very true of this one, and I think my favorite tiny detail is just the way that Mick Fleetwood plays over the bar line into the choruses, and plays that sort of and does that crash on two. That kind of thing, and that thing in particular, it carries the song and lifts it up, and it lifts you into the choruses, and that I just think is so beautiful. Song 17, Hyper Ballad by Bjork. This song with its musical synesthesia, the way it feels like such a journey, Bjork, the great genius of musical travel, this episode was a real challenge to make for some reasons that don't really have anything to do with the music, but man, it it was such a process, it was such an emotionally healing thing to do, and I'll never forget that, I'll never not associate this song with September 2020, and most songs would not want to be associated with September 2020, but in this case, um, it was actually kind of a salvation for me, so it's a good association. In terms of little things to tease out about the episode, I did like isolating and recreating that double snare delay snare wash groove that they came up with for this track, which is so distinct and so cool. But more than just any particular thing, it was the sense of the journey of this song. The way this song makes me feel both safe at home, but also this yearning, like I just long to go on a journey. And I think, you know, I know a lot of listeners have felt very cooped up. I've felt very cooped up and isolated for most of this year. And going on this journey with Bjork and then just retelling that journey over and over again. It was really special. It was an amazing experience. That feeling of being there with her at the top of the cliff and then just lifting off into the stratosphere and flying away into the night. It's not, it wasn't what I was expecting from this episode and it wasn't even what I was expecting from the song. I love the song, but I didn't realize that it would have that profound an effect, but it did. Song 18, A Day in the Life by The Beatles. Woke up 
out of bed, dragged a comb across my head. Oh man, so I just made this episode. Um, I finished it a couple of weeks ago, so I don't have a ton to add, but there is one thing that I almost included in the episode and then wound up just cutting for time, but it's to do actually with that final little goofy, weird looping thing that plays when your record player's needle reaches the middle of the LP and begins spinning around in a loop. Now, this is really something that I should have mentioned because earlier in the year I did a bonus episode interviewing Dallas Taylor, the host of 20,000 Hertz, and we talked a little bit about this moment on the recording and actually went and recorded my record player making the sound. And as I did so, my dog Appa, who was a puppy at the time, was not happy and she started barking. What I didn't know at the time and subsequently learned, because of course some people wrote in after I included my dog freaking out at the end of a day in the life, is that that was something that the Beatles wanted to have happen. They embedded a super high frequency pitch in that ending loop that would make dogs kind of upset. You know, your dog would hear it even when humans wouldn't. And it was yet another prank, another little thing about that ending that was intended to prank listeners. It certainly pranked me and my poor dog, who uh, who was not really a big fan of it, but I thought that was funny. I almost included an aside about that in the episode and wound up not fitting it in, so I wanted to mention it here for posterity. And that'll do it for this year in review episode here at the end of Strong Songs Year 2. What a year it was, I had such a great time, and it was thanks to all of you, I wouldn't be having nearly as much fun if you weren't all listening to this show, so thank you all so much for listening and for going on this musical journey with me. I'm really excited about year three, I'm also excited to take a month off, I'm not gonna lie, but if you want to support me making this show into year three and beyond, go to patreon.com strongsongs and sign up to be a patron of the show. You can even be a patron for the whole month of December and you won't even have to pay anything. Thank you so much to all of my patrons, everybody who has ever chipped in to support me making this show. You've made this all possible and I can't express my thanks enough. But really quickly, I just want to shout out by name everyone who is a current Whole Note patron of the show. That means you back it for $20 a month. You are all incredible. Thank you to Jeffrey Jew, Rick Carlos, Nico, Lori Ackerman, Ken Hirsch, Jez, Janice Gardner, Simon Crammel, Guinevere Boostrom, Jill Smith-Moore, Norelle Horn, Mickey Clark, Nathaniel Bauerenfeind, Bill Rossinger, Annie Britt, David Zom, Aaron, Aidan Coughlin, Generic Manning's Family of Four, Matt Butler, Doug Patton, Robert Paul, R. Watson, Vicki Dunn, Christopher Lindquist, Sammy Simmery, Craig Coville, Access Violation, Ryan Torvik, Merlin Mann, Fraser, Glenn, Caleb Rotash, Andre Bremer, Chad Bernard, Mark Schechter, Dave Flory, and Dan Abchinsky. Thank you all so, so much. I hope you all enjoyed this look back at year two and that you'll go check out the Strong Songs playlists and listen to all of these songs again and just treat your ears to it. We've all learned so much about each of these recordings. It's really fun to just go and luxuriate in that knowledge, listening to them all. Um, I kind of describe it like a final exam, but you're not getting graded. There's no pressure. You can just go listen to all of these songs that we've learned over the course of the year. 
As always, you can get in touch with me at listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Kirk Hamilton and on Instagram at Kirk underscore Hamilton. And hey, go check out the Strong Songs store, the new Strong Songs store at store.strongsongspodcast.com. Find yourself or a loved one a t-shirt, a mug, a tote or a sticker, something cool to tell everyone that you have learned how to listen deeply to music. Last thing to all of you who learned a new musical instrument this year, and I know there are a bunch of you out there, stick with it, keep practicing with a metronome, and try to practice every day. We didn't have that many new outro soloists this year thanks to COVID, but I'm going to let them bring us home anyway, starting with Kyle Molitor on the trombone. on the fiddle. And yours truly, Kirk Hamilton, on the tenor sax. podcast about movies this isn't a podcast about books this isn't about exit polls or true crime tales or tips for aspiring master cooks this is a podcast about the notes in the air and the notes on the page the sounds and the songs we all leave on the stage this is strong songs a podcast about music thanks for listening see you in the new year